It was not quite dawn, but the sky was lightening and there was no breeze, so the smoke from hundreds of fires rose straight into the air and then hung over the camp, obscuring its farthest reaches. Browning often liked to come up here, to the steep rocks above the settlement. He would sit here for hours sometimes, picking through the looser stones to find the occasional bright lump of quartz. It gave him a sense of perspective when things weren't going his way. It's lucky, he would think at such times, that I'm the most patient man in patience camp. Other times he got a kick seeing the place like this, like a god looking down from some celestial vantage point at all the little people below. At such times he felt that if he grew tired of patience camp, he could simply brush it away with a sweep of his hand as if all this was nothing more than ants swarming over the food and crumbs that had been left on a table at the end of a meal. Right now, he didn't know what to think, but it was something like, if scum like Captain Smiler can be king of this shithole, then what does that make me? It felt like he had been here for hours, unable to sleep. From where he sat, Browning could see the countless rooftops of the whole crowded shantytown tumbling down towards the rusting hulls that were strung out in great pontoons to create the illegal harbours of Cumberland Bay, Patience Camp's interface with the rest of the world. Above the camp wheeled vast flocks of seagulls and other birds. From here, too, the ocean looked beautiful. As darkness lifted, Distant drifting lights revealed themselves as tankers and tugs, as junks and cargo ships and barges, all caught up in their continuous, complex dance. It looked beautiful from up here. Nothing like the filthy and chaotic reality. Patience Camp was waking up. Emily and Jenny would be asleep, but he knew that across the camp other women would already be walking to the fountain to collect the day's water. Emily and Jenny were safe, he was glad of that, but elsewhere in the camp, night workers and musicians would be finishing work, gamblers counting winnings or reckoning losses. At the captain's table, and a hundred other places like it, the barman would be wiping and sweeping, flipping chairs and stacking them upside down on tabletops. The music had stopped. This was patience camp at dawn not so much waking up as in transition from one state to another. It was the same every day, light flooding through the camp and then receding, then flooding through again like the tide flowing in and out. Captain Smiler might already be sitting at his usual table by the side of the stage, drinking coffee as if nothing untoward had happened, while backstage his men counted the night's takings or took out the rubbish and shared any booty. On nights like this, when Browning couldn't sleep, he felt as if all they were doing was picking over a carcass. It was business as usual in Patience Camp. Far below, he could see people were already moving around. Now that the music had stopped, the sound of animals being slaughtered was carried on the wind from over by King Edwards. Down at the pontoons, he could see the bulldozers and heavy plant already at work, demolishing the latest part of the camp to have been deemed unsanitary or condemned in the name of road widening. All of it was bathed in the soft pink hue of dawn. 
Even the concrete slabs of the fence looked pretty in this light. He laughed bitterly to himself as he swigged beer from the can. Here we go again, he thought. Then, how do all those little people do it? Waking up in that squalor and beginning again the exhausting and relentless matter of staying alive, all driven by some slim hope that they were on the way to something better. Sure, he was waking up in the same squalor as them most mornings, but he had a safety net and a purpose in this place. He had important business that lifted him out of the seething chaos that lay spread out before him. Another day in patience camp. But no, this was not just any other day. That was the problem. For a moment, Browning had forgotten about Smiler, but it was their last conversation that had kept him awake all night. He had just been turning it over and over in his head. He felt that there was nothing he would rather do than go and tell Emily this latest outrage. But he didn't want to wake her. No, that wasn't quite it. He didn't want to ruin everything. He had wanted to tell her what Captain Smiler said so they could figure it out together. But he had had to stop himself from running to her like a baby. They had passed so many days on the boat and so many nights once Jen had gone to sleep by talking about John this or Captain Smiler that, by talking about each other's families and backgrounds and what they'd used to do before, that right now Browning missed even just the sound of her voice. Whispering, conspiratorial, mindful. Yes, Emily would know what to do. But how could he tell her this? when they had come so far together. It was only a couple of months ago that he had first set eyes upon these two, hardly any time at all since they had been as undifferentiated from the rest of the passengers as grapes in a bunch, or identical yellow mangoes in a box. It was just a few weeks since he had protected them without a second thought, but now it felt as if he had known them all his life. And yet, Emily wasn't even his type. The choke was that at some point near the beginning of their voyage, as if to pass an idle moment, maybe once they'd got clear and could relax a little, he remembered looking fairly coldly at Emily and thinking, in more or less these exact words, that it was on voyages such as this that a man could fall in love. But it got worse. Wouldn't it be funny he had thought to himself, almost as if it were a game, and never for a minute believing that it was even possible. Wouldn't it be funny? It was as if one half of him had been daring the other to do it. Wouldn't it be funny, he had thought to himself, if I fell in love with this woman during the coming weeks afloat? Oh my goodness, that was the real joke of it. Because having had this thought, Browning had then watched himself inexorably doing precisely that. Like a toy train being pushed along its wooden track, he was powerless and had no possibility of changing course. He had planted the idea in his own mind, and then like a fool, he had watched it take root and grow, 
until it dominated his thoughts and made him weak. Smiler, of course, had seen this weakness written all over his face. And now he was exploiting it. How could he have been so stupid? Distracted, he took too big a swig and felt the warm, foaming liquid running down his chin and his neck and, too late, soaking the front of his shirt. Furious with the big man and with himself, he roughly wiped his jowls with the back of his hand and threw the empty as far as he could, roaring in impotent rage. Far below Browning's eerie, Emily had been singing her own sleepless song. She felt as if she hadn't slept properly in weeks. Every night she would endlessly go over the circumstances of their escape, wondering what if, and imagining that they hadn't got away, or that she had lost sight of Jenny in the throng, or, in her darkest moments, imagining that John had forgotten about them, that he hadn't made provision, that he had somehow sold them out or betrayed them and was already setting up home with a new young girl who flattered him and who had fallen for his direct and energetic ambition, his desire for betterment and to make something of himself, just as Emily had fallen all those years ago and still was beholden now. She knew that it was John's drive and ambition that had saved them. It had been John who had seen it coming. It was him that had seen the need to sell everything while they still could and pay their way out, long before Emily had. It was John who had forced them to take action, who had taken everything they had to that hopeless-seeming rendezvous in the back of some sailor's bar and had miraculously brokered the deal with one of Smiler's other lieutenants in the north. It was John who had arranged to go ahead and prepare the way so that his family could follow. John, who had told them where and when to go and meet Browning for their own voyage south. The journey had seemed so simple the way he had explained it, but her husband had never been to sea in peacetime, let alone now. Like Emily, he had never really travelled at all. The way he spoke about it was as if their destination was only a tram ride away and he would be waiting for them by the stop at the other end. He could not have known, he could not possibly have foreseen how quickly things would become difficult or that people would be killed for places on those last few boats, that local or regional differences would be exploited and whole communities scapegoated, sacrificed in the rush to get out. If it hadn't been for Browning, if he hadn't hidden them under a tarpaulin until they were a safe distance from the coast, If it hadn't been for Browning, silencing with a single devastating blow from his machete, the bigoted loudmouth who had tried to whip up the other passengers against them. If it wasn't for Browning, Emily couldn't imagine where they would be. Or rather, she could, and all too easily. Whenever she closed her eyes, she would see those same scenes and then would pile scenario onto scenario, conjuring phantom separations or huntings down, thinking of further imaginary degradations and outrages until it was all that she could do to stop herself from screaming out and she felt just as terrified as if it were happening all over again. Even here and now, in the relative safety of patience camp, 
She might have nodded off for a minute or two, but the camp was too much of an affront to her senses to allow anything like sleep. After the quiet rocking of the boat, every noise got her back up, raised her hackles in that sudden cold rush of fear and shame. Everything sounded like danger. How could she keep Jenny safe if she allowed herself to sleep? Someone had to keep watch, and where was Browning when she needed him? She had got used to his attentive presence, his putting her and Jenny first, his appetite for her company that could be assuaged with just a smile or a chat, or by his playing cards with Jenny, a game that he called rummy, but which was nothing like the rummy that Emily remembered playing with her grandmother when she was a child. In this sleepless state, her thoughts were a circular jumble of the events of the last few months, the chaos that they had survived. She remembered gunshots, a crowd scattering like starlings, shoals of bloated bodies in the water. We're not watching the news anymore. We are the news, she thought to herself. But there aren't enough cameras in the world for this, and yet we're alive when perhaps we too should be floating face down in the water. Browning was also thinking about their journey, rolling it over and over in his head, how in this chaos he had tried to help people survive and not end up as yet more bodies in the water. I do try, he thought, to be fair in my dealings, but my feelings for these two make me weak, and yet they trust me. I found a family in a way. That Jenny, she's practically a daughter. And thanks to me, not just another bloated body in the water. Browning's eyes were bloodshot. His clothes were dirty and stained and he stank of sweat and beer. He was surprised to see Emily awake already. Morning, Em, he tried, but the note of brightness in his voice didn't match his dishevelled appearance. He maintained it nonetheless. You sleep well now? No, said Emily. I thought I would, but it's so noisy, and that damn light kept me awake. And when I did sleep... Hang on. What's going on? Has something happened? Browning smiled broadly. The crux came in this morning, fully laden. And Captain Smiler has agreed I can take her back across. Best of all, there are two places left. Emily leapt from the chair and threw her arms around Browning. Yes, oh, thank God. He pulled back slightly, then blurted it out. But the price has gone up. I need another thousand each. Paid in advance. Unable to believe what she was hearing, Emily stepped back and regarded Browning as if seeing him for the first time. But you promised we could pay you once we get there. John's been working hard, putting it aside. I don't understand. Behind her, Jenny started to stir beneath the pile of blankets and coats that had been her bed for the night. Browning, is that you? she asked. Mum? Hey, Jenny, did you sleep well? he asked. What time is it? Breakfast time, said Browning, throwing her a food bar, which she caught and, tearing open the wrapper, devoured eagerly. 
Hey, Jenny, said Browning quickly, handing her his water bottle to wash it down. Last night, did you see the Southern Cross? He turned to Emily with a new and cocky-sounding brusqueness in his voice. How should I know what you can pay? People hide all sorts of things in a lining or a hem. You'd be surprised. His eyes narrowed. Can you pay or not? Emily felt a sudden chill, but all she could manage to say was, Why did I think I could trust you? We don't need two places, Mum. Jenny had been listening. I can sit on your lap, curl up really small. Hey, Jen, said Browning, brightly. Do you want to see the penguins? Do you want to see your dad? The crux is a fast boat. We'll make a sailor of you yet. Yes, said Jenny. Emily was disgusted and made no attempt to hide it. You know I couldn't pay a single dollar. You've bought us all this way for this. You know we've got nothing left till we get there. The clothes on our backs. We were running for our lives. Remember? You'll have to find a way. Sell something or borrow. Don't you want to go? A thousand seems quite cheap for a new life. He turned to the girl. Hey, Jenny, would you like to see your father? Yes. Jenny was sitting up in bed now and reaching for her shoes. Then Browning turned to Emily. You see, listen, you're a woman. You can earn money here, or maybe one of you could go ahead. I'll tell you what I'll do. Pay me 500 by tomorrow, and Jenny comes with me. You know you can trust me. He turned and beckoned to the girl. Hey, Jenny, we can go and find your dad. Oh, yes, she said, embracing him excitedly. I bet he'd meet us off the boat. He turned to look at Emily. Five hundred. Oh, yes, mum, please. I want to see my dad. I want my dad. Emily was momentarily dumbstruck at the callousness of Browning's suggestion, but realised that she was trapped. Browning had driven a wedge between her need to protect her daughter and the need to survive, between her love for her daughter and her love for John. She felt as if shards of ice had pierced her heart, but she knew, too, that she could not allow herself to sink here. They had come too far for everything to end like this. Jenny, no, she said. There was real anger in her voice. You're just a child. I won't allow it. Why not? Jenny, no. And when I make another trip, Browning continued, you can follow. You have a choice. Do you want a new life for Jenny? It's up to you. Emily was now incandescent. You are playing with the life of my child. How can you be so cold? She reached to seize Browning's arm. After everything you've done. Don't mess with me, said Browning, pushing her away. He might have been intimidated by Emily once, but no longer. I need it by the morning. Look. He fumbled in his breast pocket and threw down the paper that Smiler had given him the night before. He is gone. Don't you get it? Can't you see I'm trying to help you? Wake up and smell the coffee. Or do you want to sink to have to carve out a life here like Felicia? and them on your own. It's not my fault. It's simple economics. The price has just gone up. That's all. Oh.